morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church this morning. It's always wonderful to be with you all. And this morning we were able to even enjoy food together, which was excellent, excellent food and fellowship. And I'm so thankful to be back in the pulpit this morning. Uh, I'm also thankful to Keith for giving me a couple of weeks. I was able to go back to Arkansas and spend some time with family there and found that it was encouraging, an encouraging time to be there, um, encouraging to hear uh, of how the Lord is treating my sister and her family, and uh, they are part of a, a very solid church in, in Nashville, Arkansas, where she lives, and I'm so thankful for that. It's been a, it's a matter, been a matter of prayer for me for years, uh, from the time when she was very young, that she'd now be a part of a church and, and have a family and be thriving the way that she is, and so, so thankful for that. And even though the, the tragedy of, of losing our grandmother... We, I was there when she passed away, and, and I will say that she went home peacefully, and I'm so thankful for that, and, and she was there with family and, and are surrounding her, and, and we were able to see her, see her off, if you will, and so we had the funeral, and that was, that was also an encouraging time. We were able to spend some time with uh, my, some of my brothers, and they were doing better, and so just be praying if you think about my brothers and my family. I don't talk much about them, but but just be praying for them. They they need all the prayer that we can all muster uh, so that they would come to know the Lord. But I'm thankful, thankful to be back. Of all places I could be today, I can't think of a better one than being here with you this morning. You know, as we read and watch the news, it's easy for us to succumb to a doomsday view of the world, is it not? And truly, I... I have personally stopped paying as much attention to our, our national news. I, 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 the news seems to revolve around all the same political talking points, yet the negative news just seems to be multiplying. Uh, but we know that there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 1.9, that which has been is that which will be, and all that has been is that which will be done. All that will be, has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Sins like murder and theft and lying and cheating and adultery and coveting and children's obedience have existed from the very beginning. We see them on display starting in, in Scripture, starting in Genesis chapter 3. And as, as bad as it seems to us to be today, I would argue that, that, that during the time before the flood, man's depravity was even more on display. And that God was grieved over man's sin because every intent of the heart, of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. As bad as it seems today, we can't say that, that things are as bad as they were before the flood. But in the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 1, he says, But know this, that in the last days difficult times will come. And as such, I believe that we are approaching difficult days. Uh, we see what's happening. Men, men are becoming more and more lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irre- irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, without gentleness, without love for good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 
And he even goes on, this is, this is Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3, he even goes on to say, holding to a form of godliness but having denied its power. That's what's happening in the church. We're holding to the church, the, the, at least the visible church, is holding to a form of godliness but has denied its power. Paul says, keep away from these kind of men. You see, these kind of sins are contradictory to the kingdom of heaven. They're contradictory to, the, to Christ's kingdom. They're more indicative of the kingdom of Satan. Now, the Apostle Paul tells us, or Apostle John tells us in 1 John 5.19, he says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We need to understand that God has the ultimate authority. There's no question of whose authority that the world is under, ultimately. But for His glory and for His purposes, He has given the evil one, Satan, temporary dominion for his, again, for His holy purposes. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul calls Satan the God of this age who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So, you and I both have friends and, and acquaintances and, and family even that have been blinded by the God of this age. We can preach the gospel to them, but they don't hear it because they've been blinded to it. In this ugly world, most of, if not all of us, have been exposed to crime at some point in our lives. I, I'll never forget my first expo- exposure to murder. In my grandparents' hometown, a young man shot a girl in a fit of jealousy and rage as she sat in church, just like you're doing right now. My dad and I were doing renovations in that church building when I heard the story, and it bothered me so much. I remember walking outside and looking through the window that he used to shoot her. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. How could somebody do that? Sitting in church, even. I'll also never forget the first I heard of mass murder at a public place. I, I don't know why this hit me so hard, but it was 1984. Some of you older folks may remember this. That 1984, at a, at a McDonald's in, in California, there was 27 killed and 20 wounded. He walked in and just mowed people down. Then there was a murderous rampage near my home where a man came and shot and killed several people. It was documented on a show called Unsolved Mysteries because it was unsolved for, a, for, several, for several, actually several years. I was shocked because I was young. I was shocked by these things. I was deathly afraid as I thought about the terror those people faced. Well, just a, a few weeks ago, I, I brought this up a few weeks ago, a young lady walked into a Christian school in Nashville with the, with the intent to kill students and, and teachers, and she ended up killing three students and three teachers before she was shot by law enforcement. Before she went on her rampage, though, she wrote a, she had written a manifesto, a manifesto which outlined her reasons for carrying out the attack. And evidently, her writings are concerning enough that they they have not been released to the general public, so we don't even know what they say, except that, that she had written this manifesto that, that gave her reasons for her rage. Now, the, the matter is being weighed in court whether or not to release this manifesto, weighing the First Amendment versus the possibility that her reflections of a mass killer could inspire a similar attack. Most people bent on mass murder Believe it or not, many of them, most of them, sit down and write manifestos. 
They do this to explain their reasons for carrying out these murderous rampages. And people absolutely love to read them to gain this insight into a murderer's mind. This is common enough that it's become, the term manifesto has a negative connotation. It's a negative connotation. Yet a manifesto is simply a statement in which someone makes his or her intentions or views easy for people to ascertain. Well, today we're returning to our sermon series titled, The King and His Glory. I've titled the, today's sermon, The King's Kingdom Manifesto. Now, that may be shocking. Again, manifesto, we hear the communist manifesto, right? A manifesto has this negative connotation. But today we're going to see the King's Manifesto. And we'll start today, we're going to start our studies in the Sermon on the Mount from chapters Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. And I hope that you are as excited about this study as I am. In our Lord's Kingdom Manifesto, we will find the intentions and the views of our Lord. And in one sense, <clears throat> we're going to find that they're simple. And they're easy to understand. And they are most certainly good. Yet in another sense, they are difficult truths. You know why they're difficult? They're difficult because they are not what we might call common sense. In the words of Oswald Chambers, everything Jesus taught was contrary to common sense. Not one thing in the Sermon on the Mount is common sense. The basis of Christianity is neither common sense nor rationalism, end quote. Said another way, borrowing from the words of James, Jesus' half-brother, the Sermon on the Mount is wisdom from above. It is first pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting and without hypocrisy, because it's wisdom from above. You see, Jesus' wisdom in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, fully and completely contradicts human and de de demonic wisdom, which is coming, not coming from above, but is earthly, it's natural, and it's demonic. That's why it's so different than what, we've, what we hear. And that's why it, in many ways, can be very difficult to understand, because it isn't common sense. In the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, no one can really live the Sermon on the Mount until they are born again. The Sermon on the Mount is impossible to the natural man or woman, end quote. John MacArthur puts it this way, despite the claims of some, the Sermon on the Mount is not a statement of ethics, but a sermon on salvation. Trying to apply the principles in this sermon apart from regeneration is futile. End quote. Beloved, the Sermon on the Mount is simple to understand when seen from the correct perspective. It is absolutely not ambiguous. Yet it is full of hard truth which the ungodly and unstable distort to their own destruction. Listen to James Montgomery Boyce. The theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the nature of the kingdom of heaven and the kind of life required of those who desire to become part of it, end quote. The truths found in this sermon are difficult 
because we live in a world full of worldly wisdom. Jesus spoke of the truths that truths spoke of truths that are contradictory to the world because he is speaking about something completely different. He's speaking about the kingdom of heaven. He's speak, speaking about the kind of life his people, his kingdom citizens who live in this world but are not of this world must lead. Today we're going to simply walk through this great and incredible sermon this incredible manifesto, if you will, looking at it as a whole. And next time, and for the next several sermons, we will dive in and evaluate and seek to understand each part of it. Now, I would argue that understanding, the key to understanding this sermon is found in Matthew 5, 17-20. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read that section, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would be glorified by our time. Lord, I pray this morning that you would give us wisdom and insight into this incredible, incredible sermon that our Lord Jesus preached so many years ago that's just as profound today as it was the day it was delivered. May we be able to see, may you give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and a heart to understand the words of this incredible, incredible sermon. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read Matthew 5, 17 through 20. This is the words of Jesus. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now listen to this last verse. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, it is vital that we understand Matthew's theme, and we've talked about it a lot. Jesus is the King. We also need to recognize the significance of the kingdom in Matthew's understanding. It is vital that we see the connection between the king and the kingdom, and today the king's manifesto or the Sermon on the Mount. Now you may recall that Jesus was born in miraculous circumstances 30 years before his public ministry began. In Matthew 1, 1-17 Matthew gave Jesus' genealogy, proving that he was the son of David, the rightful heir to David's throne. Now, we shouldn't miss this vital connection to David. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, Yahweh promised that David's house and his kingdom would endure forever. He promised that David's throne would be or shall be established forever. 
In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew makes it crystal clear to his readers that Jesus is the heir to David's throne. And he proves that Jesus was and is Israel's king and the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. He was the one who would sit on the throne of David forever. Moreover, you may also remember that Jesus was born under miraculous circumstances. According to Matthew in Matthew 1.18, when, uh, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now this caused all sorts of trouble for J- Joseph and Mary, but God had a plan for them. Joseph thought he was going to send her away, but an angel appeared to him in a dream saying, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So Joseph took Mary as his wife, and he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And according to Matthew, Jesus' royal genealogy and his miraculous birth proved that he was, in fact, the rightful king. You may also recall the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. Just after it, when he was born, the Magi came from the east seeking the one born king of the Jews. This group of what you might call kingmakers from the east had probably heard about the coming king of kings from Daniel. They had even possibly even had read the prophecies of the evil prophet Balaam recorded in Numbers. And in any case, they were looking for the birth of the Messiah, the great king who had come, and they came from great distances when they saw his star. Therefore they came to worship him, which was much better than the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leadership in Jerusalem who wouldn't even go a few miles to see, to see about this one born king of the Jews. But when the usurper king Herod heard of these things, he plotted to have the child killed because he suspected that Jesus truly was the rightful king. And as such, the child was a great threat to him and his power. He was a threat that needed to be eliminated. But Joseph and Mary protected Jesus by fleeing to Egypt. And when Herod had died, an angel of the Lord appeared to, uh, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Get up and take the child and his mother and go back into the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. The Lord had, had snuffed out King Herod. He was powerful on this, on this earth, but he was nothing compared to our Lord. And ultimately, Joseph took Mary and Jesus, Jesus to a city called Nazareth, and they settled there. And Jesus lived a rel- in a relative obscurity in Nazareth with his family until he was about 30 years old when he presented himself to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. And significantly, John had been baptizing and preaching a message uh, of repentance because of the coming kingdom of heaven. Do you see, you see the theme over and over and over that Christ is the king and there's a coming kingdom of heaven. You could call Jesus' baptism then the coronation. The coronation or the, the crowning of the king. The kingdom of heaven was at hand and the king had arrived. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit and the Father pronounced uh, with a voice out of the heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the stage was then set for Jesus' ministry to begin. Yet, the Father had a specific plan that must be followed. 
At that time, the true king would be tempted by Satan, the god of this world. You may call him the usurper king. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, by, by this usurper king of this world. And he says, if you are the Son of God, then command these stones to become bread. And he tempted him in three different ways. And significantly, the last temptation was with the kingdoms of this world. Do you not see the connection? God has currently given control of the kingdoms of this world to Satan. And as, as such, Satan tempted Jesus with them if he would fall down and worship him. Of course, Jesus refused. He is the Son of God. He is truly the Son of God, so he refused and he passed the test. And he, and he answered, uh, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He used scripture to refute the devil's lies and was found to be the worthy and true king. He truly is the Son of God. Now you may also recall that a year passed after his confrontation before Jesus officially began his public ministry in a place called Galilee. This was a year of transition as, as John the Baptist's ministry began to wind down before he was eventually arrested and ultimately beheaded. During that time, Jesus' ministry became more and more prominent. Significantly, his public preaching and healing ministry didn't start until the tra tra transition was complete. It was after this time of transition between John and Jesus that Matthew says that Jesus began uh, to preach publicly the same message as John, his forerunner, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, you see the connection, you see the thread, you see the theme. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and the king has arrived. Matthew 4.23, he was going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. According to Matthew, large crowds were following him from Galilee and Decapolis and, and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. His public ministry had begun. He was preaching the good news of the coming kingdom. And that sets the stage for then Jesus to give uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7, through the manifesto of His coming kingdom. Beloved, if you want to know what Jesus is all about, if you want to know what the kingdom is all about, this is where you find it. Matthew 5-7. through In the Sermon on the Mount... The king's manifesto for his kingdom. King Jesus reveals seven difficult truths about his kingdom. King Jesus reveals first his holy purpose for his kingdom citizens. Now, that starts in Matthew chapter 5. Now, we're going to dive deeper into these verses in the, next, in the coming weeks, but I want to set the stage and I want to give you the, the, the structure of Jesus' sermon. Look briefly at Matthew 5.1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now we know that the crowds were following Jesus because he had been going around teaching and preaching, but also that he had been healing every kind of disease. So they were attracted to him. Word of his ministry had spread throughout Galilee and beyond. Therefore, people came to see what was going on. Many of them, again, were seeking to be healed from the, their various diseases. So Jesus took this opportunity to, to 
present some specific truths about his kingdom. Notice Matthew 5, 1, he went up on the mountain. Now this should remind us of Moses ascending the mountain in Sinai to receive the law from Yahweh. Here Jesus ascends the mountain, but he sits down to give the law of his kingdom to his disciples. Now look at your text in Matthew 5, 3. Jesus began his sermon by giving his holy purpose for his subjects, the citizens of his kingdom. He begins by giving them what we have called, or what is called, the Beatitudes. Notice, each of these lines start with the word translated, blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the lowly. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst and riot for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, and so on and so on. We go through... We will go through each of these lines, line by line, but for now, I want to focus just on the meaning of this word translated blessed. The word means happy, fortunate, even even blissful. The term came to mean to having an inward contentedness unaffected by our outward circumstances. This is the kind of happiness or joy that doesn't depend upon our situation. It is a, a happiness that God desires for His children. This happiness is an inward matter that doesn't depend on where we are or what's happening to us. Now, as we study the Beatitudes, we will find that, that Jesus describes situations and circumstances that are the polar opposite to what the world says will make us happy. Notice in Matthew 5.10, He even says that blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. In other words, Those who possess the kingdom of heaven will suffer, yet they will be blessed, yet they will be happy. Obviously, this is completely different than the world, is it not? The world teaches us that we should avoid suffering at all costs. The world teaches us that we should seek comfort no matter the cost. But that's antithetical to the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, I would argue that these verses reveal Jesus' holy purpose for His people. We are to live in this current world in ways that reflect His coming kingdom and His character. It is in that way, by living according to His character and according to His coming kingdom, it is in that way that we'll be truly happy and fulfilled in this world. We're never going to find happiness by pursuing the world. I was this morning I saw a video, just a clip, of an NBA basketball player. We all, uh, most of us have probably heard the name. But, you know, he had all these vehicles. Like he was, it was, he was buying, he had, I forget, several million dollars worth of vehicles. And that's what he's doing with his money. And that's what he's doing to pursue happiness. And what Jesus is saying here is that, that those kind of things are not where we find our happiness. If we, live, if we live according to our kingdom purpose in this current world, we will suffer for the sake of righteousness, right, righteousness. Yet, when we suffer for His sake, we know that we are living according to His purpose for His people and that we are truly part of His kingdom. And it is, that is where we find happiness. Look at the second difficult truth. 
in the kingdom in the king's kingdom manifesto king jesus reveals his holy call to become his kingdom citizens that's matthew 5 13 through 16 we've seen that the beatitudes reveal god's holy purpose for his kingdom citizens now we 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 have also seen that when we live accordingly we will suffer for his name but that we will be truly blessed yet there are two other amazing results look at matthew 5:13 he says you are the salt of the earth but if the salt has become taste, tasteless how will it be made salty again it is no longer good for anything except that it be thrown out to be trampled underfoot by men First, if we become, if we, if we follow Him and we live according to His ways, if we live according to His purpose, we become salt of the earth. Now, we'll see this more as we progress, but basically we are His representatives on earth. Therefore, we must walk in purity according to His ways in order to be effective. And in doing so, we will reflect the king's glory. That's verses 14 and 15 where he says, You are the light of the, of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. We become, we become his light when we walk according to his way. He uses us to proclaim his name. And as, as such, we become attractive to those whom God is calling to himself. I'm reminded of the, of the many martyrs who died for Christ's sake, starting with the apostles. They walked according to His ways. They were persecuted for righteousness' sake, yet they let their light shine before men in such a way that others saw their good works and glorified our Father in heaven. That's Matthew 5.16. As we consider this incredible sermon, I want you to ask yourself, Am I living the way the Lord, according to His purpose, am I living in this generation in such a way that I'm suffering for my faith? Am I letting my light shine before men in such a way that they see my good works and they glorify my Father in heaven? Or am I living for myself? Let's look at the third difficult truth. In the King's Manifesto, King Jesus reveals His holy standard for His kingdom citizens. King Jesus reveals His holy standard for His kingdom citizens. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus says something that seems out of place at first glance. But I would argue that it's crucial to understanding these verses, and that's why I read that section, Matthew 5.17 and on, through 20. Look at your text in, in, in verse 17. He says that, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, the meaning of this verse depends, hinges on the meanings of the words abolish and fulfill. The Greek word translated abolish means to annul or repeal. The Jews would have been concerned with Jesus' treatment of the law. He want, so he wants them to understand his relationship to the law. He didn't come to annul or repeal or abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. Now, we're going to spend more time on this in the coming weeks. But for now, I want us to recognize that Jesus did not come to add to or take away from the law. He did not add any basic meaning to the law. He did not remove any requirements of God's law, but he came to fulfill it. 
Now, I love the words of John MacArthur in describing Jesus' fulfillment of the law. He says this, Jesus fulfilled the law, fulfilled the Old Testament by being its fulfillment. He did not simply teach it fully and exemplify it fully. Get this. He was it fully. He did not come to simply teach righteousness and to model righteousness. He came as divine righteousness. He said, and what what he said and what he did reflected who he is, end quote. Now, you may recall from your Bible reading the words of the Lord in Leviticus 19.2. Leviticus 19.2 says, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for Yahweh your God am holy. Said another way, the standard of the law is perfect holiness. The law is perfect The law is the perfect reflection, then, of God's holy character. Do you understand that? The law is the perfect reflection of God's holy character. As such, the law is rooted in God's holiness. Now, you might say that the law is rooted in God's holy character. And you could even say that we can get a glimpse of God's holy character as we see His creation. But we see it even in sharper focus when we see His Word. Therefore, when we see Jesus for who He really is, the Word made flesh, then we are seeing the fulfillment of God's law in a person. The person of the Logos. The second person of the Trinity. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Therefore, Jesus is the holy standard for righteousness. Do you understand that? Now, look at Matthew 5.20. Look at Matthew 5.20. It says, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This verse is how we understand the Sermon on the Mount. When a Jew of Jesus' day thought of righteousness, they thought of the scribes and Pharisees. In other words... If anyone was righteous, it was them. Yet, they had rigged the system in such a way that they had redefined the law according to their own standard of righteousness. So Jesus' teaching sounded completely different because the Jewish leadership, religious leadership, had twisted the meaning of the law for their purposes. They twisted it so that they could accomplish it. Does that make sense? And that's what we always do, is it not? We twist the law so that we can accomplish it. We don't recognize it for what it is, the the perfect standard. Therefore, their religion was a religion of works. They were teaching a works-based righteousness. 
And Jesus vehemently opposed salvation by any self-effort. Therefore, to say that one's righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees would seem impossible to Jesus' hearers. Because they were the standard for righteousness. But Jesus is saying, no, that is not the standard for righteousness. Ultimately, he's saying, I am the standard for righteousness. You see, it is impossible. It would seem impossible because it was impossible for any other, any other person other than Christ himself. And that's the point of the following section in Matthew 5, 21-48. In these verses, Jesus doesn't redefine the law. He doesn't redefine it. I would argue that he gives the heart of the law from the very beginning. Beloved, the standard of the law was, was and is holiness and perfection. That is an impossible standard designed to make sinners recognize their need for grace. I love the words of John Stott. Only a belief in the necessity and the possibility of a new birth can keep us from reading the Sermon on the Mount, the ser- reading the Sermon on the Mount with either foolish optimism or hopeless despair, end quote. John Piper says it this way, the Sermon on the Mount is our doctor's medical advice, not our employer's job description. In other words, it doesn't tell us how to please God by our works. It diagnoses the depth of the problem with our works. Let me say that again. It doesn't tell us how to please God by our works. It diagnoses the depth of the problem with our works. Jesus put it this way in Mark 2.17. Those who are healthy do not, need, do not have a need for a physician, but only those who are sick I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If you have not believed here today, if you have not believed in the Lord Jesus, I pray that you will come to see that you cannot be saved by your righteous efforts. You cannot be good enough. I hope that this, as we study this incredible sermon, you will recognize that you can only be saved by God's grace through faith. Let's look at the fourth Difficult truth in the King's Manifesto. (laughs) King Jesus reveals his holy standard of, of kingdom righteousness. King Jesus reveals his holy standard of kingdom righteousness. That's Matthew 6, 1 through 7, 12. Look at Matthew 6, 1. He says, beware of doing righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. In this section of the sermon, Jesus warns... Excuse me. In this section of the sermon, Jesus warns against religious hypocrisy. This type of hypocrisy is more concerned about how we look before others. Our heart of hypocrisy is always revealed in how how we advertise, how we advertise our giving, how we advertise our praying, how we advertise our, even our forgiving or, or our fasting. 
The, the truly righteous do these things. Where we, we, the truly righteous will give. The truly righteous will pray. The truly righteous obviously will forgive and, and will fast. They do these things, but they do them to please God, not men. They do them to please God, not men. And according to Jesus, our, our judgments and the contents of our private prayers also reveal our righteousness or reveal our hypocrisy. Jesus' holy standard of kingdom righteousness can be summed up with the, the parable in Luke 18, 19-14. If you want to turn there, you can. I love this, I love this parable. In Luke 18, 9, he's, he writes, and he also told this parable to some people who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The, the Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. You see what he was doing? He was advertising his righteousness, and he was showing off his hypocrisy. But then, what is the tax collector doing? Y'all know what tax collectors are, right? They, they, they were considered evil, vile. They were outcasts of society. Matthew himself was a tax collector. But watch what the tax collector is saying. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling even to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, <coughs> God, be merciful to me, me the sinner. He literally was beating his chest. Lord, be merciful. He knew, he knew that he didn't have the righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven. He knew, but guess what Jesus says? I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Ask yourself, as we think about this sermon, as we think about kingdom righteousness, ask yourself, be honest with yourself, are you more like the Pharisee or the tax collector? Do you live the Christian life so that all may see how righteous you are? Oh, I give so much. Oh, I pray so much. I, I'm in my, on my knees all the time because I want you to see me. Or do you do it because you love the Lord and because you're dependent upon the Lord? Do you live to please God without regard for how you look in the eyes of others? That my friends, is kingdom righteousness. Let's look at the fifth difficult truth in the King's Manifesto. King Jesus reveals the holy standard for entry into the kingdom. That's Matthew 7, 13, and 14. Look at those verses. Clearly, Jesus' holy standard for the kingdom is impossible for any of us to follow perfectly. His heart behind kingdom righteousness, though, also reveals our hypocrisy. It reveals our hypocrisy. Taken together, then we must consider the impossible standard of righteousness required to enter the kingdom. So after sufficiently showing the desperate nature of our situation, Jesus proclaims this in Matthew 7, 13-14, Enter through the narrow gate, 
For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life and there are few who find it. Let me tell you why that gate is so narrow. Let me tell you why. Because most people are trying to enter the gate by their own efforts. That's why it's so, that's why it's so narrow. They don't recognize the truth of Isaiah 64, 6, that all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. They don't recognize it. They don't see it. They don't see God's holy standard. They don't see God's holy standard reiterated in the Sermon on the Mount. They don't see that it reveals our desperate need for grace. See, sinner, you must recognize you must recognize that we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. Notice Romans 3.23. Paul says that we all fall short of the glory of God. There is no exception. No amount of human effort can overcome the gap between us and God. You may recall Cain from our study in Genesis 4, if you were here for the equipping hour, uh, if you were here for the equipping hour over the past few months, you see Cain was trying to make himself right with God. He was trying to restore his place before God by his own efforts. And the Apostle John said that his deeds were evil. His deeds were evil. They were evil. Do you know why they were evil? They were evil because he was trusting in his own works. And that's the reason, the ultimate reason why God didn't accept his sacrifices because he was trusting in his own works, in his own way. Abel, his brother, recognized the need for God's grace. He recognized the need for God's grace. And that is the way that we enter through the narrow gates. Beloved, I hope you see that God's holy standard is impossibly high if you're trying to be justified by your own works of righteousness. And that's his point in this incredible sermon. Let me say it this way. If you have the wrong motivation, you can't give enough, you can't pray enough, you can't fast enough, and you can't serve enough to be justified by God on the basis of your own works of righteousness. And according to Jesus, that standard is impossibly high. Yet, yet, He has offered redemption as a gift by His grace if you would only believe. I hope you see how incredible, incredible, incredible this sermon is. This leads us to the sixth difficult truth in the King's Manifesto. King Jesus reveals his holy warning against false converts. Jesus reveals his holy warning against false converts. That's 7, 15 through 23. But I want you to look at your text in Matthew 7, 22. <clears throat> Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Here's the sad truth. Many people claim to know Christ, 
They claim to have done his works, yet they do not truly know him. And on that day, standing before him in judgment, many people will claim to know him. Many people will claim to have done his works, and many people will not truly know him. They are not truly his. For all intents and purposes, they will have looked like they have entered the narrow gates. Yet, they are ultimate hypocrites. And in that day of judgment, they will stand before God's throne and will appeal to their works in the name of Christ. Yet, Christ will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That is the scary truth. But that doesn't have to be true for you. That doesn't have to be true for you. My prayer for everyone sitting here today and for everyone within the hearing of my voice, my prayer is that you would consider these sobering truths and sobering words and that you would turn to Him and trust in His grace alone for salvation. That is the key, is to understand and have the the humility to understand the brokenness, to understand your sin before a holy God and cry out to Him, Oh Lord, help me! You're the only one that can do it! Do what that tax collector did. Beat your breasts and say, be merciful to me. Because you will find mercy if you ask for it. And you truly want and, deserve, and, and, and desire it. And if you've done so, I pray that you'll proclaim the gospel of grace to everyone around you. And if you have not so I pray, done so, I pray that you would do it now. Don't let another moment pass. Let's look, briefly look at Jesus' seventh difficult truth in this kingdom manifesto. Jesus reveals his holy wisdom for righteous living. Let's listen to his final words in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to not only listen, but I want you to take them to heart. As we've as we've surveyed this entire sermon and what Jesus is trying to do, we're looking at the, the structure of it. We're looking at the heart of it. We're looking at the, the theme of it. I, I, we're not looking, we're not delving into the, into the specific truths yet, but we'll do that. But I want you to look at it as a whole. I want you to think about it as a whole. And I want you to listen to these words in light of what we're saying. Listen, Matthew seven twenty four. Therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them may be compared to a wise man man, who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended and the rivers came and the winds blew and fell against that house, yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. You know what that rock is? It's Christ. It's Christ and his word. Is your life founded on Christ and his word? If, if it is, it doesn't matter what the storm brings. You, it will, you will never fail because he's, he's your foundation, right? But then he goes on. And everyone hearing these words of mine and not doing them may be compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. 
If you build, if you build your house, the house of your life, if you build your life on the sand of this world, it will be destroyed. That's his point. Beloved, we need to recognize two general truths about Jesus' sermon. The first is that we can't live up to these truths in our own strength. This is summed up well by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, I would rather make bricks without straw than try to live the Sermon on the Mount in my own strength. But the second is similar, and, and Oswald Chambers gives this point of view. The Sermon on the Mount is not rules and regulations. It is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is getting His way with us. Do you not see both sides of it? We can't live up to the standard in our own strength. But with the Holy Spirit getting His way with us, we can live according to what He wants us and how He wants us to live. And in recognizing these two truths, we must see the two ways clearly given in this sermon. There's the way of the world and the way of the kingdom. We either live our lives upon the rock of God's wisdom and His definition for righteousness, or we build upon the sand of the world's wisdom and the world's twisted definition of righteousness. There's two ways. There's the way to destruction, and there's the way to salvation. There's the, the, the wide path, and there's the narrow gate. That's it. Well, we're going to spend several weeks, possibly months, studying this great sermon. And as we study these chapters, it'll feel like a study within a study. In other words, we're continuing to study Matthew's gospel, yet within that study, we will be privileged, privileged to study the greatest sermon ever given. We're privileged to study the greatest wisdom ever spoken. Beloved, as familiar as this sermon may seem to you, depending on where you are in your walk, I'm praying that this study in this sermon will have a profound impact on your life and the life of this church. As we ready ourselves to study over the next whatever it is the Lord has for us, let me give you a few helpful reasons to study it from James Montgomery Boyce. He says this, First, the Sermon on the Mount shows us the absolute necessity of the new birth. The Sermon on the Mount shows us the absolute necessity of the new birth. Beloved, Jesus presents the perfect standard of righteousness and holiness. And we cannot miss that we are called to live accordingly. And the only way that we're going to do so is in the power of the Holy Spirit along with the reality of God's grace. Second, again, this is James Montgomery Boyce who's helping us with this. The Sermon on the Mount should be studied because it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we said earlier, Jesus embodied the law. Jesus fulfilled it because he, he, is, he is the perfect fulfillment of these things. And so when we behold Christ, when we behold His words, we are beholding perfect holiness and righteousness. 
I would argue that Jesus' sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, puts his holiness and his righteousness on display. Third, we should study the Sermon on the Mount because it indicates the way to blessing for Christians. It indicates the way to blessing for Christians. The Christian finds happiness not in accordance to, with the world's standards, but in accordance with these principles found within this sermon. You see, as Christians, if you are a Christian, you are only going to be happy when you are following uh, the wisdom and principles given by Jesus, not by the world. Do you want to live a blessed life? Do you want to be happy? I'm talking true happiness. I'm not talking about Disneyland happiness or Disney World happiness. I'm not talking about uh, the, the greatest place on earth kind of happiness. I'm talking about true happiness and blessedness. Then follow Jesus' words in the sermon. Fourth and lastly, we study this Sermon on the Mount as Christians because it shows us the way to please our Heavenly Father. It is true that we cannot please Him until we first become a member of His family. That only comes with the new birth, but once we are in His family, it is our privilege to please Him, end quote. <clears throat> Beloved church, as Christians, we should live to please our Lord. And Jesus' sermon makes it clear, it makes it crystal clear that our happiness comes from pleasing Him. And let me tell you, this is not legalism. You know, people get all weird about legalism. Not legalism. It's living to please Him. There is a difference. There is a difference. Legalism has the motive of justification with our, by our works, that we're somehow going to be justified by obeying Him. This, this is obedience, which has the understanding that God actually loves and blesses our obedience. We do it because it pleases Him. Let me ask it this way. Do you want your best life now? I'm talking truly your best life then see it as your great privilege to understand Jesus' commands and to obey Him. And if you do that, then you will live the blessed life. The blessed life. Which is truly the best life, right? I just can't wait. I can't wait to dig into this sermon. I hope today was helpful. That you would see the, the overall structure of the sermon and helpful as we move forward into our study. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again. Lord, I pray that you would bless my meager efforts to, to give a sense of what's here. A sense of the depth. We are just skimming across the surface this morning. Lord, I pray that you would bless this, bless this time as we go forward, as we plumb the depths. Lord, we'll never get to the bottom. It's so deep. But Lord, may we 
would just enjoy the time and grow as a church through this study. In Christ's name, amen.